This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 27, 2007. I'm Caleb Brown. What do the tools of economics have to tell us about the prospects for imposing democracy around the world? In a new book, After War, The Political Economy of Exporting Democracy, West Virginia University economics professor Chris Coyne takes the analytical tools of economics and applies them to the successes and failures of spreading liberal democracy. I spoke with him after a book forum yesterday. Germany and Japan are, as you say, the benchmarks against which other post-war reconstructions are gauged. Given the relative success of those, is that essentially the reason why U.S. policymakers are confident in their ability to engage in these types of reconstructions to spread democracy? Well, that's definitely part of it. I mean, these successes of post-World War II Japan and, and uh, West Germany, I, I think, gave a false sense of optimism uh, to, to policymakers uh, uh, about the ability of the U.S. to export liberal uh, institutions. Uh, but what I emphasize in the book is that uh, more recent efforts and, and the countries that pose a threat to the United States now, uh, mainly weakened failed states, are extremely different uh, than, than Japan and West uh, Germany in terms of development, in terms of culture, um, and in terms of the the context of war um, and occupation. So while they've definitely given uh, policymakers a sense of optimism, I think they're extremely poor benchmarks for um, current and future uh, reconstruction efforts. You suggest that there exists a bias toward short-sighted policies. Of course, in domestic policy, that's a well-known insight uh, from public choice economists. But what are the implications of that insight for those who might like to export democracy where it isn't now? Well, I think it's directly applicable and extremely important because the argument is there's a temporal disconnect. So elected officials who are either constrained by a term limit or an election cycle uh, will look for the benefits that can accrue to them in the the current period, in other words, while they're in office, and they'll basically uh, forego uh, considering the relevant costs because those costs will occur um, in subsequent years. So basically what happens in many cases, they'll look at the the short-term benefits of intervening um, and and neglect these costs that, that won't come due. The bills don't come due for years, if not decades down the line. So in the context of Iraq, for instance, uh, when Lawrence Lindsay was uh, the economic advisor to the Bush administration back in 2002, uh, he uh, estimated that the Iraq war would be somewhere in the range of, uh, of 100 to $200 billion. At the time he estimated that, the Bush administration uh, got very angry and said this was uh, absurd and, and a very high um, estimate. Uh, but now, uh, just a couple years later, after Lindsay's long gone from his position, uh, estimates are, are $1 to tr- $2 trillion for the total cost. And even that might be est- uh, underestimating it. There's things like the cost of, of supporting uh, and providing health care for veterans, psychological costs, and so forth. And these, these costs won't come to fruition uh, for decades down the line. Uh, so there's, you know, there's significant costs that, that the American population has to think about when, when, when we're considering undertaking uh, these foreign interventions. You say in your book, a key purpose of Reconstruction is to change the preferences and opportunities of the members of the country being reconstructed. Now, that might be common knowledge in foreign policy circles, and I think most Americans believe that Reconstructions will change opportunities, hopefully for the better. But changing preferences at least seems a little counterintuitive. The public narrative uh, seems to be, at least in Iraq, is that the desire for liberal democracy is its just it's just there. It's always there. And it only takes an invasion, a reconstruction, and setting up these social institutions to really just unleash it. 
Right, that's definitely true. Um, and, uh, you know, the argument in the book is that um, people do prefer being free and, and liberty, but they have their own definition of what freedom and liberty is. And I think in many cases that's different um, than, than how we perceive it here in, in the United States. Uh, so the argument in the book is that, well, look, we're, we're pretty efficient. When I say we, I mean the United States is pretty efficient and effective at toppling regimes. So that changes the opportunities right away. We overthrew uh, the, the Saddam, uh, Saddam Hussein's regime in a very short period of time. We overthrew the Taliban in Afghanistan in a very short period of time. But the subsequent reconstruction, um, in other words, getting getting these citizens to coordinate around the institutions that we want to impose has been a, a much greater challenge. And that's where the preferences come in. If we can effectively coordinate people, uh, and when I say coordinate them, I mean their preferences, values, beliefs, and so forth, around these institutions, they'll be self-sustaining over time because people will voluntarily buy into them. In contrast, if, if those underlying values and beliefs uh, contradict uh, or, or, or are not aligned with the formal institutions, they'll unravel over time. And that's what we've seen uh, in both Iraq and Afghanistan, at least over the short run. And there's no reason to believe it will be different over the long run. Um, so it's not so much that, that, that I'm not making the claim that people don't prefer liberty, they don't prefer freedom. The argument is they, they may they prefer those things in a different way than we do in the West, and simply trying to export what we view as institutions that align with those Western values uh, doesn't uh, work. Related to this issue of short-sighted policies is the issue you talk about uh, at length, this credible commitment, and the United States' involvement in Iraq. If you watch the domestic debate about Iraq— other nations around the world could be watching this and seeing how credible is a U.S. commitment to uh, promoting democracy either in our country or some other country, and why should we uh, go along with it given the fact that there is so much uh, turmoil in the United States over how to proceed? Right. Well, I, I bring up this issue of credible commitment in the book, and it, it's actually a multi-layered problem, and it makes things extremely difficult, and, and I think should cause uh, skepticism regarding the U.S.'s ability to be effective in these interventions. And just briefly, the problem of credible commitment is 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 this fundamental problem that policymakers face a temporal disconnect between policies announced now and their actions in the future, and in many cases policymakers announce something now in the current period, and then in future periods, they change their mind. Uh, in, in economic terms, it's not optimal in subsequent periods, that same policy, so they change their course of action. But citizens are not stupid. They, they realize the incentives that policymakers face, and you only can trick people so many times. Eventually, when you uh, say, well, we're going to do X, and then you do Y in future periods, well, eventually people aren't going to believe you anymore. It's the equivalent of crying wolf. Um, so how does this affect Reconstruction? Well, it affects Reconstruction on multiple levels. As you pointed out, it affects how other nations perceive us. But it's even more difficult than that. We occupy Iraq, for instance, and they don't view us as credible uh, because uh, they don't view us as liberating them. Many of them view us uh, as occupiers. On top of that, you have a credible commitment problem within Iraq itself. So there's three major divisions in Iraq, but even within those three divisions, there's all these little subdivisions. They all have these historical experience with, with each other of, of one group taking advantage of another or trying to gain power over the others. So why would these groups view the others as being credible? And of course, when you try to establish a, a central government based on liberal democratic principles, you have to get people within that society to buy in. But if people don't trust other groups or other individuals, in other words, they don't believe them to be credible, they don't believe that they'll respect property rights, they'll respect political and civil rights, and so forth, after the United States leaves the country, there's no way the institutions are going to be sustainable, even if we are successful at establishing them. Um, so there's no 
this problem of credible commitment is multi-layered, and there's no apparent solution. There's some theoretical solutions that exist in the economics literature, but none of them seem to relate uh, directly to reconstruction efforts. Um, and uh, you know, at first you mentioned Japan and West Germany. Well, the interesting contrast here is in both cases there wasn't really a credible commitment problem, which is part of the reason I think we were successful. We relied on existing institutions, political institutions, and social and economic institutions, which were viewed as legitimate by indigenous citizens. And we went in as occupiers. We said we were occupiers. There was an official surrender. Um, so there's there none of these issues of, well, is the United States going to be credible? Uh, it was very clear what we were doing and uh, what our goal was. Where in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've sent mixed signals. We say, well, look, we're here to liberate you um, so you can get in, engage in self-determination. But then we've also played a very active role in influencing and determining outcomes. So we're sending mixed signals. Uh, and when you do this, it makes the broader reconstruction project extremely difficult. Chris Coyne is author of After War, The Political Economy of Exporting Democracy. He's also a professor of economics at West Virginia University. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. You can watch the full book forum at our website, cato.org.